Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? And what does Murder, She Wrote, have to do with it? Join us for the message, Having the Mind of Christ. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. What does it mean to say that we have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus? And what does murder, she wrote, have to do with it? <laughs> we'll be exploring that a little bit later in, in our message, Having the Mind of Christ. Our scripture this morning comes from Genesis and from Philippians. Our first reading is Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Listen now for the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the servant said to the woman, You'll not die, for God knows that when you eat on it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing a good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Our second scripture comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 and 12 and 13. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do not from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work at you, enabling you both to, born, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, God. As no doubt most of you are aware, Mahatma Gandhi was the leader of the independence movement in the nation of India as they struggled against British rule. He led a movement of nonviolent resistance in the first half of the 20th century, which eventually led to India's independence in 1947. Unfortunately, Gandhi was assassinated just five months after India gained independence. And he was assassinated by a fellow Hindu who thought Gandhi had been too generous to the predominantly Muslim nation of Pakistan who also gained its independence at the same time as India. During his life, Gandhi built a reputation as a man of great wisdom. In fact, most people presumed that Mahatma was his first name. But actually, his full name was Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi. Mahatma was actually an honorific title 
that means high-souled or venerable in Sanskrit. And so eventually Mahatma Gandhi just became the name by which he was known by people all over the world. But because Gandhi had a reputation as being a very wise man, people would routinely go to him for personal advice. And one day, a woman brought her young daughter to Gandhi. She was concerned that her daughter was addicted to sweets. And so Gandhi told them to come back in three weeks. Three weeks later, they returned, and Gandhi took the young girl aside and explained that it just wasn't good for her to eat that many sweets. Well, the mother thanked him, but asked him why he couldn't have said that three weeks ago. And he replied, three weeks ago, I was still addicted to sweet foods myself. <laughs> so even someone as wise and insightful as Gandhi didn't feel qualified to offer advice to others over things over which he himself had not conquered. And I can tell you that's what it's like to preach, because I'm often called to preach about things that I have not conquered or achieved myself. And it can be very humbling because I certainly haven't conquered my addiction to chocolate donuts, <laughs> for which all of you are my enablers, by the way. <laughs> I've heard psychotherapists and professional counselors say the same thing, that oftentimes they're called to help people solve problems which they know they themselves are still struggling. Yet even though I still have a far, long way to go myself, I want to talk to you today about the Holy Spirit and that process of sanctification. Now, by way of review, remember that John Wesley talked about prevenient, justifying, and sanctifying grace of God. In other words, we experience the Holy Spirit in prevenient, justifying, and sanctifying ways. And remember, prevenient grace is the grace and presence of the Holy Spirit that surrounds us from the moment of birth and continuously is drawing us into relationship with God. And we swim in prevenient grace all of our lives, whether we ever respond to God's overtures or not. But if we do choose to respond to God's overtures, we receive the grace and the presence of the Holy Spirit in a special way that allows us to respond to God's invitation to receive that gift of forgiveness and new life in Christ, and we call that justifying grace. Sanctifying grace is then when the Holy Spirit makes us alive to and aware of the presence of God by entering our hearts and transforming our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And we receive a spiritual heart transplant. You may remember that two weeks ago we read from the prophet Ezekiel. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you. With the spirit's heart transplant, we begin to fall more and more in love with God and therefore better able to love others. And we desire more and more to live the kind of life that Jesus modeled for us. But you may also remember, however, there was one big difference between a medical heart transplant and a spiritual heart transplant. A spiritual heart transplant is going to take more than one surgery to complete. In fact, it's going to take us our entire lifetimes to complete. And so this is what Methodists talk about when we talk about sanctifying grace. It is the slow and gradual reforming of our hearts and minds until they reflect the heart and mind of Jesus. It's a replacement of our hearts of stone with a vulnerable heart of flesh 
because only a heart of flesh is capable of love. And this always reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis. And I know, I think, I have a memory that I've quoted this to you, I think, already in a sermon so far this year. But I'm quoting it again because it's such a great quote for what we're talking about today. And this comes from his book called The Four Loves. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Sanctifying grace, then, is the grace and presence of the Holy Spirit that works in our hearts, transforming us into the full image of God in which we were created, and then giving us that same mind that was in Christ Jesus, as Paul wrote. So in a sense, our conversions to Christ are never fully complete in this lifetime. Which then reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Maya Angelou. She said, I'm always amazed when people walk up to me and say, I'm a Christian. And I always think, already? You've already got it? My goodness, you're fast. In justification, we sometimes say we're born from above or we've been born again. Justification gives us this sense of rebirth where we become new babes in Christ. Sanctification, by contrast, then, is how we grow up and become mature disciples of Jesus Christ. The kind of transformation that the Holy Spirit brings through sanctifying grace is not the same thing as self-improvement, as important as that process can be in our lives. But self-improvement comes through gaining insight into ourselves and then applying these insights by our own efforts. And I fully endorse, by the way, gaining as much insight into yourself as possible, to be as self-aware as possible. But sanctification is a more fundamental transformation. It accomplishes change that we could never make happen all on our own. This is because the Holy Spirit can reach deeper than is possible by self-reflection alone. Because the Holy Spirit can, take, can touch places in our hearts and minds that only the Holy Spirit can reach. Through the letter of Paul to the Philippians, the Holy Spirit calls us then to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. We're called to be like Jesus. And so even though this may sound strange to our ears, if you think about it from a logic, if, if we're called to be like Jesus in a way that's also saying that we're called to be like God, and that's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. But sometimes, oh, if someone wants to be like God, that's usually meant as an insult. Adam and Eve wanted the same thing, to be like God, to possess the wisdom of knowing good and evil. But I, I mean, wouldn't it be a good thing? to be able to distinguish between good and evil. I've known many people that got very confused between those two concepts. The Spirit said to them, God knows that when you eat of the forbidden tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. But they chose the wrong path to knowledge of good and evil. They chose to try and do this without God, by going around God. 
The only way to become like God and to really truly know that difference between good and evil is to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. And that, has come, that happens only through God and only through the Holy Spirit. It's by opening our hearts and minds to the working of the Holy Spirit in order to transform us from within. And this kind of transformation is not just for the, the super-Christian. It's for every Christian. So what would it look like to have the same mind that was in Christ? In other words, what, what does it look like to be like Jesus? Well, it would mean that our lives imitated the life of Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that we adopt a first-century lifestyle, complete with wearing robes and sandals and eschewing all technology. Though I do think eschewing all technology for short periods of time is not a bad way to gain spiritual insight. But it does mean adopting the characteristics of Jesus' heart and mind. So first of all, it means being our real, true, and authentic selves. Jesus accepted his role as son of God and never tried to be anything else. He lived fully into his calling. And likewise, we are to be our real, true, and authentic selves, not to wear masks or pretend that we're something that we're not. We accept and live into exactly who God created us to be. And we allow the Holy Spirit to strip away all those false pretenses. And so secondly, when we adopt the characteristics of Jesus' heart and mind, we treat everyone we meet with love and respect and dignity. My mother was a big fan of the TV show Murder, she wrote. When I watched the show, I always wondered how such a quaint little town like Cabot Cove, Maine, managed to have such a high murder rate. <laughs> I asked my mom once why she liked the show so much. And she replied that she really admired that central character, Jessica Fletcher. And so in the words of my mother, Jessica was the kind of person who could talk to anyone, from the Queen of England down to the stable boy, and be equally comfortable with both, and more importantly, be just as gracious with both. Because that's certainly what Jesus did. He treated everyone he met with love and respect and dignity. Rich or poor, men and women, children, elderly, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. The only people he publicly spoke out against were religious hypocrites and those who oppressed others. But since we're not God, it's not possible for us to always love others the way Jesus loved. And so sometimes when I can't quite manage that feeling of love, sometimes the best we can do, though, is open ourselves up and allow the Holy Spirit to love others through us. And even if we don't feel like it, we can still treat others with love and respect and dignity even if we don't necessarily are always feeling those things. Still treating others that way is still so important. Third, when we adopt the characteristics of Jesus' heart and mind, we're going to live a life in intimacy with God. Jesus experienced deep intimacy with God the Father through the Holy Spirit. So to experience anything like the intimacy with God that Jesus enjoyed, it requires then that we let the Holy Spirit enter our hearts and souls to change us from within. 
Now, you may say, as you leave here today and say to yourself, I'm going to try harder to be like Jesus. But as we said earlier, sanctification is not about self-improvement. It isn't really about trying harder. Sanctification is about the Holy Spirit transforming us inwardly in ways in which we are incapable. If we say we're just going to try harder, then we don't really understand what sanctification is all about. Because sanctification accomplishes change in ourselves that we could never make happen on our own, again, because the Holy Spirit can reach places in our hearts and minds that only the Holy Spirit can reach. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit, but it does require our cooperation because we do have free will. And we can either let the Holy Spirit do the Holy Spirit's work or we can fight that work every step of the way. And that is up to us. Here I think we can gain insight through the 12 steps, uh, which is used in uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous organization and other 12-step organizations. Members of Alcoholics Anonymous work through the 12 steps in order to change their lives, or rather to let God change their lives. And at some point I want to do a sermon series on the 12 steps, because I think even if you're not an alcoholic or an addict, I think the 12 steps is a very practical and accessible pathway for spiritual growth. So I'm not going to do the steps justice today, but I did want to outline a few of them. First, members of Alcoholics Anonymous admit that they have become powerless over alcohol. If they still had power over alcohol, they would just stop drinking themselves. Then they came to believe that God could restore them to sanity, followed by a conscious turning over of their lives to God. In other words, being willing to open that heart to the Holy Spirit. And this is followed by taking what they call a fearless moral inventory, looking throughout their lives from the beginning and admitting the nature of their wrongs, asking forgiveness from God, as well as forgiveness from those whom they have wronged. So I don't think we have to be alcoholics or drug addicts to find these steps helpful. These steps outline what happens during justification and then sanctification. And so in this case, don't just think of addiction as necessarily just, just a, a dependence on alcohol or drugs. We can think of an addiction as any ongoing behavior or an enduring personality trait that has been impervious to our individual attempts to change or control. Moreover, this pattern of behavior or personality, excuse me, personality characteristic diminishes our lives and the lives of those around us. For example, a woman might realize that she has a problem with excess anger. Her anger spills out in road rage and outbursts of cursing may even cost her her job or her family. She's tried to rein in her anger, but it just keeps bubbling up from somewhere deep inside her, and she can't seem to get a handle on it, and it's ruining her life. Or another example, a man may realize that his credit card debt's getting out of control. He knows he can't afford it, but he keeps buying things he doesn't really need. And when he maxes out one card, he gets another one in the mail. He's not saving and investing for his future, and his marriage is under tremendous strain. He's made several resolutions to quit spending so much, but they just never seem to quite do any good. This is a time when persons 
may finally be ready to relax and let this Holy Spirit take control. These are the persons who might finally be willing to pray and ready to pray to let go and to let God. And so from then on out, they cooperate with the Holy Spirit by allowing the Holy Spirit to touch those places, usually very hurt and damaged places in their hearts and minds that only the Holy Spirit can reach. So now is the time not to try harder to be like Jesus, but rather to pray to be more like Jesus, and then let the Holy Spirit get to work. We must remember, however, that while sometimes God can and will affect in us a more or less instantaneous change, most of the time change comes very slowly over time, sometimes glacially. It can feel like you take two steps forward and one step back, and you will fail. But the Holy Spirit's going to be there to get you up on your feet again. So don't lose hope when you fall back into bad behavior. As Paul says in Philippians, which has always been one of my favorite verses he wrote, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you to will and work for his good pleasure. I might also add that most of the time, one of the major ways that the Holy Spirit evokes change in us is through other people which, by the way, is another principle of, of Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs, that you're now you're part of a community as you're going through these 12 steps together. And we need the community of the church. The church encourages us on our journey and reminds us of God's love and forgiveness when we relapse into whatever bad behaviors we know are not doing us any good. We may also need the help of a professional sometimes, such as a therapist or a counselor or a physician. There is no shame in getting help, because none of us are able to do it on our own. And I have sought therapy several times during my life, and if that's what you need to do, that's what you need to do. But I also cannot emphasize enough the importance of prayer. Prayer is an integral part of the 12 steps and of any real spiritual change. We need to pray initially for the Holy Spirit to take control, but we also need to just be praying throughout the entire process of sanctification. And since the process of sanctification takes our entire lives, then we need to start living lives of prayer. Because sanctification takes a lifetime. And there will be times when we need to pray just for the fortitude to keep praying. Because there will be times we don't feel like it. Our prayer should encompass both times that we talk to God and times that we listen to God. And our times of listening can simply mean being quiet in the presence of God. Or we could adopt some form of meditation. I think that's one of the reasons behind us wanting to leave the prayer room open at all times the church is open. And to have resources in there, resources that are already in there, plus these new ones that we're adding. Prayer is in all things, uh, in prayer as in all things, there is a time to speak and a time to keep silent, a time to speak to God and a time to listen to God. It is in prayer that the Holy Spirit affects the deep transformation of sanctification. And in a way, it's a paradox. The more we give over control of our lives to the Holy Spirit, that is, the more we develop the mind of Christ, the more freedom we experience because we're freed from those powers that have enslaved us. We're continually growing 
into that image of God in which we're created, becoming more like Jesus. And again, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. So may we all become reflections then of the glory of God. Amen. And now receive this benediction. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with hope and faith and love. Be filled with joy. And then to be a conduit of the Holy Spirit to everyone you meet. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Join us again next Sunday as we continue our sermon series, The Holy Spirit, God on Fire. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.